So Ezekiel chapter 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem. Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut. Nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No, I pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in open field, for you were aboard on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with a fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your whorings on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made for yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. And you took your embroidered garments to cover them, and set my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread that I gave you, I fed you with fine flour and oil and honey, You set before them for a pleasing aroma, and so it was, declares the Lord God. And you took your sons and your daughters whom you had born to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your whoring so small a matter that you slaughtered my children and delivered them up as an offering by fire to them? And in all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth, when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. And after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Behold, therefore, I stretched out my hand against you and diminished your allotted portion 
and delivered you to the greed of your enemies, the daughters of the Philistines, who were ashamed of your lewd behavior. You played the whore also with the Assyrians, because you were not satisfied. Yes, you played the whore with them, and still you were not satisfied. You multiplied your whoring also with the trading land of Chaldea, and even with this you were not satisfied. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord God, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute, building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street and making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like a prostitute because you scorned payment. Adulterous wife, who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to all your lovers bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore, and you gave payment, while no payment was given to you. Therefore you were different. Therefore, O prostitute, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, because your lust was poured out and your nakedness uncovered in your whorings with your lovers and with all your abominable idols, And because of the blood of your children that you gave to them, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, all those who you loved and all those you hated. I will gather them against you from every side and will uncover your nakedness to them, that they may see all your nakedness. And I will judge you as women who commit adultery and shed blood are judged and bring upon you the blood of wrath and jealousy. And I will give you into their hands, and they shall throw you down, throw down your vaulted chamber, and break down your lofty places. They shall strip you of your clothes, and take your beautiful jewels, and leave you naked and bare. They shall bring up a crowd against you, and they shall stone you, and cut you to pieces with their swords. And they shall burn your houses, and execute judgments upon you in the sight of many women. I will make you stop playing the whore, and you shall also give payment no more. So will I satisfy my wrath on you, and my jealousy shall depart from you. I will be calm, and will no more be angry. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me with all these things, therefore, behold, I have returned your deeds upon your head, declares the Lord God. Have you not committed lewdness in addition to all your abominations? Behold, everyone who uses Proverbs will use this proverb about you. Like mother, like daughter. You are the daughter of your mother who loathed her husband and her children. And you are the sister of your sisters who loathed their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite and your father an Amorite. And your eldest sister is Samaria who lived with her daughters to the north of you. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you, is Sodom with her daughters. Not only did you walk in their ways and do according to their abominations, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. 
you have committed more abominations than they. And they made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. They are more in the right than you. So be ashamed, you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in their midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you have done, becoming a consolation to them. As for your sisters, Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former state, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former state, and you and your daughters shall return to your former state. Was not your sister Sodom a byword in your mouth in the day of your pride, before your wickedness was uncovered? Now you have become an object of reproach for the daughters of Syria and all those around her, and for the daughters of the Philistines, those all around who despise you. You bear the penalty of your lewdness and your abominations, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish you for you an everlasting covenant. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame, when I atone for you all that you have done, declares the Lord God. Ezekiel, we've been doing a series through this book in Ezekiel, um, and there are many passages which are difficult to preach in Ezekiel, which I've struggled with, but I think this one takes the biscuit. Um, This is a shocking passage. You were meant to be shocked by what you read there in the Bible. Uh, It is a truly difficult passage to preach on. And I I want to give a a few caveats before we look at this parable, because it is a parable. Um, But first, we kind of need to remind ourselves of the context of what's going on in this book, because without the context, we would be lost. We need to remember that the book of Ezekiel was written around 600 years before Jesus, at a time when God's people were really just one nation, the nation of Israel. And at the time Ezekiel writes this, Israel was in a state of real crisis. You see, everything about this nation, everything about Israel, its religious identity, its hope and its security, its prominence in the world, was all centered around its capital city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem was was God's holy city. It was the place where God himself dwelt. And it was all tied in with, with these promises that God gives in the Old Testament of salvation and blessing to the entire world. It was to come out of Jerusalem. But at the time of Ezekiel, Jerusalem had been invaded by the mighty Babylonian army. And most of its residents had been taken away as prisoners to Babylon, including Uh, Ezekiel himself. And God has been telling Ezekiel that the reason that happened 
was because he ordained it. So, this is God's punishment on Jerusalem. This is God's punishment on his own people because they really had done some of the most horrendous things you could think of. In fact, we've been seeing that God has told Ezekiel that worse is to come for Jerusalem because he's been saying the Babylonians are going to come back and this time they're going to kill everyone in the city and they're going to destroy the temple. Now, we have to understand how devastating that was for Ezekiel and for his fellow prisoners, his fellow exiles, because all their hope was in Jerusalem. They believed that as long as there was people in in God's holy city, then there would be hope for Israel and hope for the world. They believed that if Jerusalem stood, then their hope would still stand. But as we saw God, as we saw last week, God wanted Ezekiel to see and to understand that their hope was not to be in a city, it was not to be in a temple, but to be in God himself. God was going to keep these great promises that he made, but not through Jerusalem, through Ezekiel and his fellow exiles. Now, in chapter 16, God tells Ezekiel a parable, which is a parable that represents the history of Jerusalem. This is why God is punishing this city. This is why he's destroying it. And the purpose of this parable is to try and wean Ezekiel and his fellow exiles off of the city of Jerusalem and to look to God, rather, for their hope and for their salvation. Now, before we dive in, there is one very important thing we must understand about chapter 16, and that is this. This is a parable. In other words, it's a metaphor. We mustn't take it too literally, and we mustn't take it too far. It's a metaphor that is there to illustrate and help us feel one particular truth in, in a way that would be different to just simply describing it. It's not a complete It's not a complete picture, but an illustration of of one aspect, namely how their sin made God feel, how these people treated God and how it made him feel. That's what this parable is trying to convey to Ezekiel and to us today. And the metaphor of an adulterous wife is there to shock us and there to make us feel how horrible sin is to God. That is why the language in this passage is so shocking. And sometimes there needs to be shocking language to try and shake us up. It's not, it's not a PG passage of the Bible. Um, it's like if, you, you know, if you've ever seen a film like Schindler's List, that film is rated a 15 for a reason. Because in order to really, truly convey the shock of the Holocaust... It had to show disturbing images that are just not suitable for children to watch. For God to convey the full shock of the sin of Jerusalem, he has to use this disturbing imagery and this very sexually explicit language so that we will be shocked at how this sin made him feel. The other thing I want to say just by way of this being a metaphor is that And I think this is very important to state from the onset. It's not anti-women. 
It's true that Israel is seen as an adulterous woman here, um, but it's not that women are somehow more promiscuous than men. We know that from reading the Bible. Men are frequently, if not more, called out for their sexual sin in the Bible. It's just for the purpose of the story, God has always been portrayed as a husband, and Israel, Jerusalem, has been portrayed as his wife. Other places, Israel is seen as God's son. In fact, you can see in the previous chapter of Ezekiel, chapter 15, uh, God compares Israel to a fruitless vine. Uh, God is no more anti-woman here than he is uh, anti-grapes in chapter 15. Uh, uh, The whole Bible really does hold women in, in such a high regard that at its time, and even today, was so radical. Jesus um, gave them a prominence that was simply unheard of at his time. In fact, some of the very first people to be saved and to respond to the good news of Jesus were thieves and sex workers. I don't want to labor that point, but it's a very important thing to bring up. This is not an attack on females or on female sexuality. It's an image. It's a metaphor. It's a parable to convey God's relationship with his people and to get us to feel how horrendous and how heartbreaking and how repulsive sin is to God. To that end then, I think that this parable is there to elicit three responses from his people then and for his church today. Remembrance, shame, and amazement. You can see I've got an outline on your service sheet uh, that I'm going to work through as we look at this. Remember how God treated you be ashamed of how you treated God, and thirdly, be amazed at God's grace in keeping his promise uh, promise to us. And as we apply this, I want to do it in two ways tonight. By looking firstly at the sin in our own lives, and secondly, I want to look at our church in this country and how we apply this passage corporately to our church. I feel that The doctrine of sin rests so lightly on our church today. And we need Ezekiel 16. We need to get serious about sin. We need to be maybe more ashamed than we are by our sin. Because it's only then that we really will be amazed by grace. First point then. First application that we're to see in this parable. Remember how God treated you. That's what God wants these Israelites to know. Remember how God treated you. Verse 1 to 14. The beginning of the parable talks about the founding of the city of Jerusalem being like the finding of an abandoned baby. Jerusalem was originally a pagan city. Verse 3, your father was an Amorite, your mother a Hittite. They were a pagan city that was neglected by their pagan parents. Um, In the days before systematic abortion, the way that you would get rid of a child that you didn't want was to throw it on a rubbish dump. And this quite often happened, especially with female children, because um, people would want the male child as the heir in their family. But God uses this image of this abandoned child lying on the dump, wallowing in her blood, And he walks by and he cleans her and he takes her and he says to her, live. And he saves her. And the image is is not just of of the city of Jerusalem, but of the people of Jerusalem, of the nation of Israel. He rescued them out of Egypt. He brought them to this pagan city of Jerusalem to become his city, to become the place where he himself was going to dwell with these people. He made them grow and he made them flourish. Verse 8 is an image of a marriage proposal. God made promises to them. And the word that's used all throughout the Bible is the word covenant, 
which means a promise. God made a covenant with these people. He promised that He would live them. He live with them. He promised that, that He would use them to bless the world. He promised that, that from them would come a king who would save the world. He promised to be their God, and they were to be His people. He loved them. He cared for them. He took this weak helpless tribe that nobody heard of or nobody cared for. He took this abandoned baby and he made her into a queen. Verse 12, I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty and your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. And what had they done to deserve this? Nothing, and yet God had given them everything. This, the kind of description there, the images of gold and of silver and of, of fine linen. It's very similar, actually, to the description of the materials used to build uh, the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a place where God dwelt prior to dwelling in His temple in Jerusalem. And it's as if God is saying that, that you were beautiful because I was with you. I was dwelling among you. Thinking back on, on Israel's history to the reign of, of King Solomon, when Israel had peace on all sides, when they were as numerous as the stars of the sky, God gave them everything. But more amazing than what they had was who they had. God himself was with these people. And yet this is what they've forgotten. God's saying to Israel, you've forgotten how wretched you were before me. You've forgotten what I have done for you. You've become complacent. You've taken these gifts of, of grace, assuming that, that somehow you deserve them. And as great as all that was for them then, as great as this kind of picture of what God did for Israel in the city of Jerusalem, it is but a tiny, minuscule reflection of what God has given the world through Jesus Christ. This picture of a kind of helpless, abandoned baby being rescued by God and being called to live, this image of going from a, a pauper to a princess, from death to life, is exactly the kind of image that describes what God has done for us through Jesus. This is the, the radical transformation that God does in someone's life when they become a Christian. So take your Bibles, flip forward with me to Ephesians chapter 2, just to see this kind of language used in the New Testament. Page 976 of the church Bibles, Ephesians chapter 2. This is what the Apostle Paul says uh, of the Gentile Christians in Ephesus. He says this, Chapter 2, verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived 
in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So everyone here, if you're a Christian, prior to being a Christian, that's a description of what you were like. Following the devil, dead in your sins, by nature, a child of God's wrath. Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, that is incredible. That transformation that God has initiated in a Christian's life from being dead in sin to being made alive in Christ, that is incredible. That is what God has done. You and me were on a path of eternal judgment and hell, and God intervened, and he said, no. He cried out to us to live. What did he adorn us with? He clothed us with the righteousness of Christ. He crowned us with his loving kindness. And yet how often we complain when things don't go our way. How often we dare think that God does not care for me. We have forgotten. Look what we so often forget. This is the gospel. How do you know that you're starting to forget this? Well, it's how you approach God, how you approach Jesus. Do you really love Christ? You know, the 18th century uh, theologian Jonathan Edwards said this, that, that religious hypocrites find God merely useful, but genuine Christians are enamored by him. That's how you know you remember grace. God is not just simply useful to me, but there's an awe and there's a joy and there's a love just in who he is and the fact that he is mine. That he would, he who is so good, that he would want us who are so bad. That's the gospel, and I fear that many churches may have forgotten that simple gospel, forgotten that the thing that makes the church beautiful is the beauty of that gospel, not its relevance, not its trendiness, but it's the gospel of grace. I need to be reminded of this every day, because I constantly forget this. Jesus knows we need to be reminded of this. That's why he gave us communion, the Lord's Supper, because he knows that we will forget grace. To be reminded of, how, of God, how God treated me when I deserve nothing but his judgment. And here's the thing. It's only when we start to understand how God treated us that we will begin to be ashamed of how we treat him. And that's the second point that we see in this parable. He wants Israel to be ashamed of how they have treated God. Verse 15 through to 58. Uh, the image of of God's kind of unconditional love. It's a really beautiful image in verse 1 to 14, isn't it? But it's there only to serve the horror of the sin that pervades the rest of this parable. You know, marriage itself is a, 
it's a really, it's a really powerful God-given image. And sex within marriage is one of the most intimate forms of union. So special. And to desecrate that is therefore one of the most heartbreaking betrayals possible. And that is why God dares to use the image of an unloving, nymphomaniac wife to describe his feelings of betrayal from Israel. Verse 15, but you trusted in your beauty and played the whore because of your renown and lavished your horns on any passerby. Your beauty became his. You took some of your garments and made, your, made yourself colorful shrines, and on them played the whore. The like has never been, nor ever shall be. You also took your beautiful jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself images of men, and with them played the whore. This kind of shocking language of, of whoredom really dominates this parable. Verses 15 through to 20, they're describing Israel's whoring after other gods and their, their ritual worship of other gods. Rather than giving thanks to God for all that he did for them, they turned their back on him and they, they chased after the false gods of other nations. And it's not a one-off. That is, you read Old Testament history, that is the hallmark of Jerusalem. That is what they are constantly doing. They build temples to foreign gods. They give their food to foreign gods. They worship dumb idols and they ignore the God who is speaking to them and pleading with them and constantly trying to get them to turn back to him. Perhaps worst of all is what's described here in verse 20. Sadly, that's not a metaphor. They sacrificed their own children to these foreign gods. That's what they did in Jerusalem. They took their babies and they killed them and worship to foreign gods. Notice in these verses the repeated word, my. God's saying, all my things, all my gifts, even my children, you gave them to these other gods. But it's not just this religious, spiritual prostitution. It's political prostitution. That's what's been described in verses 23 to 34. Verse 23, and after all your wickedness, woe, woe to you, declares the Lord God. You built yourself a vaulted chamber and made yourself a lofty place in every square. At the head of every street, you built your lofty place and made your beauty an abomination, offering yourself. Now, that's a polite translation. You can see the footnote. Literally, spreading your legs to any passerby and multiplying your whoring. You also played the whore with the Egyptians, your lustful neighbors, multiplying your whoring to provoke me to anger. Listen to the graphic language in this passage. This is God. This is God speaking. This is how shocking sin is, and this is how it makes him feel. Look, some of you here, I don't know, but some of you here may have been married to someone who cheated on you, and you know maybe better than most, what this pain is like. Some of you maybe have just been stood up on a date and felt a tiny bit of the pain of rejected love. It's one of the worst pains. Imagine this. Being married and then on your wedding night, your spouse goes and sleeps with someone else on your wedding night. In fact, for the whole of your marriage, they wantonly flirt with others and sleep around unashamedly. They abuse the, the good that you're constantly trying to give them 
And they would even kill your own children so that they could flirt with others. All of it is done to feed that nymphomania. You see, God says in verse 34, it's worse than prostitution. At least a prostitute does it for money. But Israel, you pay for this. How would you react? How should a holy God, who is not just a loving husband, that's just one aspect of this metaphor, but how should a holy God, who is both the judge and Lord of all the earth act, what should he do? But do you see, what we have in chapter 16 is not just a picture of Israel's sin. Chapter 16 is a picture of what sin in general is like to God. See, sin is idolatry. And idolatry is simply when you put something else in the place of God, something else in the place of Jesus in your life. Every wrong that we think, that we say, that we do, is because at those moments, we are lusting after something more than God himself. God's approval, my status in God's eyes is not enough. And it can be really subtle. Claim to love Jesus, but in reality, the thing you love is your money more than Him, your family more than Him, your relationships more than Him, your reputation more than Him, your status, or even worse, yourself. And sometimes the thing we love can be good things, but they are not to take the place of God. Ask yourself this question honestly, and this is a good litmus test for idolatry. What is the one thing you feel that you need in your life to give it real value and meaning? What's the one thing you need in your life to give it value and meaning? The one thing you could not live without, that is your God. That is what you will love more than Jesus. That is what you will sacrifice for. And every time that we pursue that, we say to Jesus, you are not enough. What you did in Ephesians 2, that's not enough. To come to church, to sing, all, all we have is Christ, all we need is Christ. And then throughout the week to really give no thought to Him. Because we're too busy spreading our legs to the idols of reputation or comfort or whatever it is. And if that shocks and offends you, then that's good. Maybe you'll start to see how shocking and offensive our little respectable sins are to God. That's sin. Sin is not just breaking rules. Sin is breaking God's heart. That's what makes it so wicked. This is a problem, and we need to be more ashamed of it, not because we fear we might get caught out, but because of how it mistreats our Savior, the one who, who did that great transformation in Ephesians 2. It's as hurtful and it's as betraying to him as the adulterous wife in Ezekiel 16. Whenever we do and say and think these things that are wrong. But genuine Christianity is about confronting that. It's about confronting our sin. And not using it to wallow in self-pity, which is really just another form of self-worship. But bringing it to God in repentance and in shame. Because it's the shame of sin that magnifies the greatness of grace. We need to be more ashamed of it as individuals. I need to be more ashamed of it. And we need to especially be ashamed of it when we see it out there in our churches. The two largest denominations in the UK are now considering 
making decisions to go actively against God's word. Why? Because they lust over cultural acceptance more than God's honor. And that is shameful. And that's what will happen this week, and we must call it out. We must call it out in the same way that Jesus called out the sin of Jerusalem himself when he wept over it. And with all brokenness, we must call it out. Let me just briefly sum up the rest of this section. What follows in in verses 35 to 42 is God's description of the punishment, the shocking punishment Jerusalem will and did face at the hand of her enemies. If they want to behave like a pagan nation, God's going to treat them like a pagan nation. And God's, that's, that's often how God's judgment works. He gives people what they want. And if that's what Jerusalem wants, then that's what they can have. And then in verse 44 to 58, we have this very interesting, probably slightly confusion uh, section where God calls Jerusalem the sister of Samaria and Sodom. You see that there in verse 46. Now, Samaria was the northern part of Israel. It was renowned for its um, idolatry and turning away from God. And all the residents of Jerusalem used to make fun of Samaria. They used to use it as kind of a byword for evil uh, and spiritual adultery. Sodom was renowned for its moral failure. Uh, Interestingly, in verse 49 there, God picks up on Sodom's lack of care for the poor. So Samaria is the, in the north of Jerusalem, is the epitome of spiritual failure. Sodom in the south of Jerusalem is the epitome of social failure. They were once bywords to the people of Jerusalem, but God is saying here in this section, these are your sisters. You're from the same stock as them. In fact, those nations that you criticized, let me tell you something, you are far worse than them. Be wary of passing judgment on others without looking at yourself, blinded by your own pride. And although we must, and and I must, and the elders of the church must call out the sin and the idolatry of the wider church, we need to do so always mindful of our own hearts, of our own sinfulness. Look, you're all nice people. I imagine most of you are very nice. Uh, I like to think I'm probably quite nice. I'm quite a nice guy. Um, But if you really saw my heart, if you really, really saw it, I don't know all the things I'd ever thought and said and done. You'd probably want nothing to do with me. God sees it all my idolatry. He doesn't forget as I often forget. How sick is your heart, he says in verse 30. How sick is your heart? And it's not just moral failure, but fundamentally, the thing that hurts him most is how I treat him. I ignore him and how I give so little thought to him when he has done so much for me. And if you don't feel the shame of sin, you probably don't know who you are. But like I said, the horror of sin is not to lead us to introspective despair. We are shamed by it so that we can be amazed by his grace. Our hearts are sick. Every single one of you, your heart is sick, but thankfully Jesus came for the sick. And this is where we close with the third point, the very end of this parable. Just as we closed, we need to use all this to be amazed 
at God's grace. You know, that after all that God has said, by the way, this incident with Jerusalem, this history was not just like a few weeks. This was hundreds and hundreds of years that God put up with his people doing this, with this adultery. And after all of that, you think that God would divorce his adulterous wife, that he would get up and leave her. And don't get me wrong, Jerusalem will fall. Verse 59, God will deal with her as she has done. But Ezekiel and his fellow exiles are not to have their hope in a city of stone, but in the God of grace. Verse 60, God says this, after all that parable, yet I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. And I will establish for you an everlasting covenant then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you take your sisters, both your elder and your younger, and I give them to you as daughters, but not on account of the covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, that you may remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame when I atone for you all that you have done declares the Lord God. God's saying, I, I'll remember. Though you constantly forget me, I won't forget you. That promise made on the wedding day, though she chose to live an adulterous life, God will not forsake his promise. He will not turn back on his promise. He'll remember he will restore Jerusalem. In fact, he actually says here, their sisters, Sodom and Samaria. Wow. Hope for, for the very worst of mankind. He will remember. Praise God that he is faithful despite our faithlessness. Because see that promise, that promise that was given here of a covenant, that promise of an everlasting covenant is a promise that, that you can trace throughout the entire storyline of the Bible. Ezekiel and his exiles, they held on to it for 600 years through tears and through persecution. And then it happened as Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth, God with us. And right before the night of his crucifixion, Jesus gathered his disciples in a room and he took a cup of wine and he held it up and he said something astonishing to them. He said, drink for this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus brought about the new promise, the new covenant, the everlasting covenant, one that doesn't eradicate this old one, but, but finally fulfills it, a new promise that is marked by, by one key trait, forgiveness. And as Jesus died that following day on the cross, that forgiveness was achieved for all who would accept it. That was the moment where God made atonement for sin. In his death, he took the punishment our, our adulterous hearts deserve so that we could be free from any sort of condemnation. We do the sin. He does the atonement. That is the gospel. That's the good news. We sin, he atones. We bring our sin to the table. He brings atonement. Let me put it to you as shocking as this to understand how Jesus did that. 
If Jesus on the cross becomes our sin, do you know what that means? Jesus on the cross becomes the adulterous, nymphomaniac wife of Ezekiel 16 so that we, the church, could become his beautiful bride. That's why the apostle Paul says this in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus does for his church. We sin, he atones. That's what Jesus does for us as individuals. We sin, he atones. You see, as shocking as the portrayal of sin is in Ezekiel 16, it is nowhere near as shocking as the portrayal of grace that we see at the cross of Jesus Christ, that he would become that sin so that we would be free from any judgment. He turns the prostitute into a bride. Marriage, marriage is, a, it is a great image because a marriage that is broken by adultery is one of the most painful acts of betrayal. But a marriage where there is commitment and where there is honesty is one of the most beautiful things. And yet even that's just a muddy, feeble illustration of the perfect, restored relationship that we now have with God through Jesus Christ. And one day, all that offensive sin in our sick hearts will be gone forever, and we will live with him in a place the Bible calls the New Jerusalem, free from all death and suffering and tears. We who so offended God will become his most treasured possession. That's how amazing grace is for a wretch like me. Let me pray. Father, passages like this remind us of the ugliness of sin, how shocking it is. Idolatry is so blasphemous and so wicked, and yet our hearts are idol factories. We put so many things in place of you, and it's as shameful and as disgusting and as repulsive that cheating person who goes around, spreads their legs and prostitutes themselves. And yet despite that, despite the fact that that is what our sin is like, despite the fact we often forget you, you don't forget your promise. And we praise you that you don't. Because if there's one thing this passage makes clear to us, there is no hope in us even the best of us, is this person. And so we praise you for Jesus. We sinned, but he made atonement. We praise you that he took the punishment we deserve. That he became our sin so we could become his righteousness. We praise you that he has cleansed us from all that sin. We praise you that because he has presented us as his church with great joy to you without any blemish or fault, we can confidently come to you knowing that we will be forgiven because it's not down to us. We sin, Jesus atones. 
Thank you for that grace that you would take us who were dead in our sins and make us alive in Christ. That you would take us in our pitiful state and clothe us in the robe of his righteousness and crown us with his loving kindness. That you would look upon us as you look upon your own son and say, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Thank you that Jesus has taken all the guilt and shame and anger for our sin. But help us never to take lightly how offensive our sin was to you. May we really understand the offense of it so that we can really understand the greatness of the cross. May we see how amazing grace is. In Jesus' name, amen.